Well, happy Veterans Day to my wife. You were stationed up here at Fort Drum when we met. And who would have thought? A teacher and a soldier coming together. And look at us now. So at Drum, dear, what was your job basically? And what were your working conditions like kind of day to day? Everyone's given a MOS, a Military Occupational Specialty. And mine was a 35 Fox, which is Intelligence Analyst. And sometimes you work in the, the G2, which I did. I'm not sure how to acquaint that with civilian terms, but basically it's a research analyst and a briefer. We get to research a specific topic, and then when called upon, we have to present information about that specific topic to senior personnel. Um, I also worked in SSO office, which deals with background checks and issuing IDs to get into secure places. And another job I had was it was working uh, with the company level with the XO, which was usually a lieutenant and the first sergeant and the commander. So the different working conditions were different for each one. Sometimes I would work 12-hour shifts from open to night when I was working in headquarters. And other jobs I had, it was really a lot of checking on company operations, making sure things were running smoothly, babysitting paperwork. And then sometimes my job was physical, outside, all day. Day-to-day, you changed. Let's talk about the security analyst side, since that was, you know, your role of intelligence. What was that like, generally? Well, I called it the dungeon because it's in a skiff, which is basically a concrete bunker with no windows in the basement. Ongoing joke, our MOS was called PowerPoint Rangers because we just sat around all day and just made really pretty pictures. We had to do a lot of research to put just a few minute information on a PowerPoint, but it's also researching to find facts, right? not just opinions uh-huh. and presenting all the facts and the correct facts and validating the sources where the facts came from. That is a protracted, definitely deep dive into the resources you had. Well, there were ways of presenting it. We had to, on every page, source where we got our information as well as every single document had to be classified or a classification had to be mentioned on it so that at any given point in time, we knew what kind of information and how much we could put on a document. Depending on the classification level, there was certain criteria you could or could not, or to what extent. So what was the highest ranking official you had the opportunity to brief, and what was that like? Well, if you're at the G2 level, then that would mean we worked for division, and we briefed the general, the manning general of Fort Drone. And I had the privilege to brief three out of the four that were there while I was stationed there. So what's it like to walk into the room and they're waiting on you? They want to hear what you have to say. What's that circumstance like? What's the moment like when you're actually going to do that? Pins and needles, anxious, terrified, hoping I don't forget the words that I've got memorized in my head. (laughs) We do have our uh, briefing paper in front of us with the information, so it's not completely memorized, but you've rehearsed it, practiced it, and presented it in front of how many other senior officials before it goes to the general. So you've already presented this how many times in front of your team, your NCO, senior supervisors and other senior bosses before it goes to them so they can fine-tune your presentation. 
Now, would you go in there alone or were you with other colleagues? Or is that- we were with other colleagues, but they would stand off to the side. But we were in front by ourselves, either in a podium or just standing up in front of people. So what would you say as far as the work you had to do day to day? What was one main challenge associated with those conditions? Finding balance, I guess, because we always had a normal accountability formation in the morning and PT. That was consistent, mm-hmm. which... It was something you could count on every day as far as routine goes. You don't always get lunch. I guess the day-to-day was hope for the best and prepare for the worst. (laughs) Sure. Sometimes I would have to carry snacks with me and never leave without your water because you never know when you could get put on a special detail or extra duty somewhere else. And it just kind of lingers longer. So given the roles you had, where do you fall on the statement? The Army is a service, not a job. What do you think when you hear that? Well, day-to-day work you think of as a job, but overall, it's a service to the next mission. Mm -hmm. Our day-to-day work was going toward the next mission. Right. Preparing for that. Since DRUM is a rapid deployment base, you're either preparing for the next mission or you're kind of analyzing the one you just came from to prepare for the next one. Thanks for chatting, Aubrey. Again, happy Veterans Day to my soldier girl. Thank you, sweetie. Yes. So that last question is from an article that came across by Jennifer Middlestad of Rutgers University, published in International Labor and Working Class History in 2011. The Army is a service, not a job. Unionization, employment, and the meaning of military service in the late 20th century United States. In her abstract, she writes... This article tells the story of an often forgotten attempt to unionize the U.S. Armed Forces in the 1970s. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, an AFL-CIO-affiliated union representing federal employees, voted to allow military personnel to join its union in 1976. Military personnel proved far more open to the bid than expected. Nursing grievances from threatened congressional cuts to their institutional benefits Between one-third and one-half welcomed the Union, though a worried Congress, a powerful military leadership, and skeptical public opinion quashed unionization within the year. The brief episode nevertheless left an influential legacy. Coming just after the difficult transition from the draft to the volunteer force, the Union bid forced military leaders, soldiers, and supporters in Congress to defend both military service and military benefits from encroachments of an occupational model symbolized by unionization. Their successful distinction between military service and employment elevated the former as uniquely honorable and arduous, and thus deserving of unwavering congressional support. Public unions, the embodiment of the occupational threat to military service, emerged bruised by the comparison to vaunted military service and endured a decades-long decline in membership and congressional protection. I put the link in the show notes if you want to see it in full. It's a thorough piece, running 24 pages. Click on Alternate Access Options, then Read Online. I got it by signing in with my Google account. Fast forward to 2022. The Department of Justice gave the green light to National Guard members on active duty for their states to join labor unions despite a U.S. law that makes it a felony for military personnel on active federal duty to unionize. So that's how that developed. Reported by the AP, the department settled the federal lawsuit filed in Connecticut by labor unions, having conceded the federal ban does not stop Connecticut National Guard members on state duty ordered by the governor from seeking collective bargaining rights. 
Both sides agreed to a dismissal of the case. Already, the case has prompted some National Guard members in Texas to unionize, they reported at the time. The 1978 federal law makes it a criminal felony for members of the armed forces, including the National Guard, to join or attempt to form a labor organization. But the statute only applies to service members when they're on active federal duty ordered by U.S. military officials, according to the Veterans Legal Services Clinic at Yale Law School, represented the unions in the lawsuit. Before this case, unions were understandably deterred from organizing state active duty National Guard members due to the potential for criminal penalties. Rika Kennedy, a Yale Law student working for the clinic, said in a statement. With this reassurance from the DOJ, unions nationwide can begin the process of building relationships with Guard members without fear of prosecution, Kennedy said. If Guard members do unionize, they'll be in a better position to negotiate pay, benefits, working conditions, living conditions, and other arrangements for active duty state deployments, members said. Connecticut Guard members were waiting for the agreement to be finalized before beginning unionizing efforts, but some Texas National Guard members already have moved ahead with their plans, joining the Texas State Employees Union starting in February. Texas members said they were encouraged by a January court filing in the Connecticut case where the Justice Department acknowledged the federal ban did not apply to National Guard members on state duty. Some Texas National Guard members have criticized their working and living conditions at the U.S.-Mexico border where Governor Greg Abbott had sent them in efforts to arrest migrants crossing the border. We've been rapidly activated with no notice, often working long shifts on irregular schedules, living in poor conditions far from our families and homes, Texas National Guard member Hunter Schuler said in a statement in response to the Connecticut lawsuit settlement. Meanwhile, our education benefits have been cut. We're subjected to inconsistent and unclear leave policies, and we lack benefits comparable to those received on federal service such as health insurance, he said. DOJ's position confirms that we're free to organize and fight for changes that every service member deserves. So in any case, my gratitude to all veterans past and present. To me, labor is labor, and what you do qualifies as such. Enjoy the day.